I think by the time I left, which was five years after launching the program, it was delivering more than 50% of the revenue from less than 2% of the total monthly audience. So I think that means there's still plenty of room for growth. What I've noticed, though, talking to a small publishers, there is a real issue with fear of asking for money. Welcome. My name is Hal Crawford, and this is the Crawford Media Podcast, where ideas about news media are aired without fear or favour. Today, I'm talking to Margie Vary, the former marketing director of The Guardian Australia. I met Margie in a Zoom meeting with her current employer, Press Patron and immediately realised I needed to get her insights on the record. Margie brings a scientific approach to the question of how to ask readers for money. It's a tough one, and it's a question that's been answered highly successfully by The Guardian, as you'll hear. So I don't have to explain it later. In discussion, Margie mentions Alex. This is Alex Clark, the founder and CEO of Press Patron, a company that makes a system for news sites to accept reader contributions. Hi, I'm Margie, Margie Berry. I'm um, an independent consultant working with publishing industry at the moment, helping with reader revenue models. And I was the marketing director of The Guardian in Australia for six years during the time that we were building the reader revenue contributions model. Yeah, it's great to talk to you today, Margie. And the other day, you and I were chatting in a separate call, and uh, it just seemed to me that the your experience was so relevant to so many people in news media at the moment that I wanted to talk to you more and and do a podcast with you. Can you tell me how it went at the Guardian with with getting money out of readers? It was a fascinating learning experience. I think when I started in 2013, um, reader revenue at The Guardian mainly meant, well, we were selling The Guardian Weekly magazine, but also this huge array of merchandise from books to garden spades, I think. And when I started, I came from an airline with a strong customer service mentality, and I was very quickly put in my place by the audience editor for talking about customers, because they weren't customers, they were readers. And so I had to get into this mentality of, you know, of the audience engagement language. But I think at the same time, everyone could see they're writing on the wall for advertising revenue, there was, and there was a scramble to launch a viable reader revenue business. And this did mean that there was a big cultural shift coming. And from the start at The Guardian, we agreed that the paywall was just not in line with the mission and purpose. And it's very much, a, am sure, as you know, a very purpose-driven organisation. So we, But we had been getting some great traction with live events and masterclasses. So we started with this big grand plan of a sort of multi-tiered membership model with different types of discounts for events and, and other soft benefits. And we very nearly even bought a big events venue in London we were that sort of committed to it. But the problem was the cost of sale and the confusion. So it, it turned out to just be a bit too much and too expensive to run. And I think that ad revenue fell even faster than expected that year. So at Guardian Australia, we sort of held back a year before launching membership just to see how the UK went. And we very quickly realised that there was a need to eliminate any cost of sale first and foremost. So even while the UK was sort of giving away branded bags to new members, um, Instead, I asked our cartoonist, First Dog on the Moon, to create a JPEG certificate that they could sort of print out and stick on the fridge. And it was a kind of joke in a way. It was a satirical act because it meant we were technically selling a product but not just taking donations. But there was zero cost of sale. 
and that meant that we could focus on just converting the most loyal sort of died in the wool guardian fans first and foremost by using the message that all their money would go to support the journalism and um, and this was a key insight that was based on audience research that showed that our Aussie readers just didn't really want to be given stuff they wanted to help the guardian survive and grow so we looked at the both at the digital e-commerce industry but also at charity models to develop the program and from charities, I learned a lot about cause-related marketing. And in those early days, there was this huge fear around, I mean, I think there still is, obviously, around the reduction of diversity in Australian media. And this produced a groundswell of, of support in, in giving. And then once this model had proven itself to be viable, the team in London then started investing in hiring experts. We had researchers, loyalty marketers, you know, customer experience and retention experts, put dev resource into it, but most importantly, connected this contributions program closely with the, the the newsroom and with editorial through a membership editor, which meant that the journalism continued to be the focus that drove conversion. So although there's still lots of lumps and bumps along the way, you know, for example, with the tech, the, the sort of the need, the timing, the messaging and the product were well aligned and the newsroom really supported it so that it, it drove success. So I think by the time I left, which was five years after launching the program, it was delivering more than 50% of the revenue from less than 2% of the total monthly audience. So I think that means there's still plenty of room for growth. Would you mind reiterating that? So more than 50% of the revenue from 2% of the readership base? Yeah, so I think if you look at the monthly audience, they have 180,000 supporters now in Australia and over a million globally, which is... I'm going on Google Analytics data, by the way, not published Nielsen data. I think that's between 1% and 2% of the monthly audience. So there, there's a core of true believer who who is willing to support the mission. Yeah, absolutely. The important thing was to explain to them why, but The Guardian was a mission-based organisation, so it wasn't too hard to talk about the mission and explain you know, the need for support. Um, mm. and, and I think the readers are obviously very in Australia, very keen to have a diverse and healthy news ecosystem and willing to, to you know, fund that financially. The, I'm really interested in that, in that moment of realisation you had that it wasn't, the, the perks weren't motivating people to, to contribute or, or were, were they but not sufficiently to justify the cost? It's not a yes or no answer. I guess it's a scale. Some people we found through research are more motivated um, by a transactional relationship and some people are more motivated by an emotional relationship. So by a transactional relationship, I mean they wanted to get something for their money and by an emotional relationship, I mean just um, willing to give for the cause. But the the research showed that the majority were um, more interested in just giving for the cause because they they wanted the impact of their money to be as maximised through it going towards the journalism rather than to buying them a bag or you know access to an event. So I'm I mean really interested in you've got that two percent who are contributing uh, the lion's share of the contributions, and you you said earlier that you that indicates that there's room to grow. How do you grow beyond loyalists? How do you get contributions out of more casual readers? It's very clear that engagement is a key factor in conversion. And um, you'd hope that more than 2% of your audience would count as engaged. Uh, so people reading the, the editorial newsletters, for example, 
we've seen from research around the world that you should be able to convert between 10 to 15 percent of your newsletter base because they're loyal readers but if you get beyond and it takes a while to get to that point where you can you know bring people along the journey of understanding why you need the money and then and then eventually getting around to contributing but if you feel like you've really gotten to the point where everybody who's going to give to you voluntarily has already well that's the point when you start introducing paid products so at the guardian we did a lot of work on you know developing the sort of an app model where you could pay for a premium version of the app where you actually do get a hard benefit as well which is you know you don't see advertising you get some extra benefits etc so so you, ha- you do need to have a blended ultimately if you're trying to convert more people a blended model where you can offer both emotional and transactional benefits and Maggie, in the way that you talk about these things, you've, you've struck me as a, a, a very sort of um, logical and almost hard-headed analyst of the way people the way people subscribe and donate to businesses. Some businesses are, are, are better suited to this than others, aren't they? Yes, I I've been surprised actually. I think I thought originally this would be a very niche thing that only really you know hardcore cause related strong socially minded public interest journalism models would work but but actually since i've been involved with press patron i've seen that that's not the case and since i've been doing lots of research i i think really there's a lot of reasons why people are willing to support content it's really just about understanding the reason why you create the content in the first place most of the time people who publish content it's because they see a need in the in the market they want to fill that need they're serving um, the audience with something that they need in their life to do something. Um, and as long as you understand how to articulate that value proposition and build a relationship with their audience where you can talk to them about your value proposition, about why you're doing what you do, and then your product actually um, is built from that value proposition, there's a huge range of, of publishers who are then able to convert that sort of brand loyalty into, into voluntary support. And I think the Membership Puzzle Project did a really a sort of broad-ranging piece of research into this that showed they had about eight different reasons why people are willing to support news organisations through, they were looking specifically at membership model, but through voluntary models. And it ranged from, you know, a sense of affiliation or belonging to being connected to other like-minded people or being connected to other like-minded organisations even. And so you can imagine that that can apply to a whole range of, of titles, even, you know, special interest titles like computer magazines, you know, would have people who feel like that's content worth supporting. So the most important thing is really to understand your readers' needs, build your value proposition around those needs and be confident that your content is worth supporting. And I feel what I've noticed though, talking to a small publishers, there is a real issue with fear of asking for money. And so I think it's a cultural shift that, that, you know, you have to work with them to explain that there's no reason to feel bad about asking for money. It's actually something to be proud of that you produce content that is, that, that, you know, is valuable enough that people should be willing to support it. Yeah. I think it can be very difficult for people to ask they feel like they're asking something for nothing. H- have audience expectations around paying for news changed over time? Yes, most definitely. So obviously, we were used to buy we were used to buy the newspaper, and then we all got our content for free on the internet, and we sort of got trained into that model. The internet is like free to air television, I guess, where you get the content for free as long as you you know experience seeing advertising, and then suddenly that advertising model broke. And so we had to retrain audiences to pay for news. And 
I think that was a you know that's a massive challenge to get people to pay for something that they had been getting for free. But organisations like News Corp, who really stuck to their guns with their paywall model, I think massively helped in Australia in educating audiences that that news needed to be funded. And so I think we've come a long way now in understanding that. And that's how the Guardian's model, I think, was able to be successful because at the same time people were being educated about the the crisis in news funding and the need to support it. And I know that there was a bit of, I think, you know, some people have expressed a little bit of frustration maybe with the Guardian's model um, because they were saying they were offering news free and open to everybody and they felt it would be easier if we all went behind paywalls and we all stuck with the same model. But actually the messaging that we were that we were developing at the Guardian to drive the voluntary contributions model was all around um, the crisis and funding of journalism, the need to support journalism. It was just that the mechanism was sort of voluntary rather than paywalled but but the the messaging was all reinforcing the same idea that people have to take in, in a society a democratic society people do have to take some responsibility if they want a healthy news industry they're going to have to pay some money for it with with the guardian uh, sometimes it strikes me that they that they ask too often and for <laughs> contribution what's your what, what's the data say about that what's the optimum amount of asking that one should do Oh my God, that, that's the golden question, is it? Well, I mean, the thing about The Guardian is it, it's kind of set up as a testing lab, really, the contributions department. is constantly testing, multivariate testing every single element of of the, the reader journey to conversion and testing friction points, testing customer complaints points. I mean, one of my key job when I was in Australia was to join up all the dots right from the, the sort of acquisition team through to the customer service and complaints department, as it were, and just make sure that the one end wasn't, you know, we weren't generating more more complaints at one end that were undermining the um, acquisition. And so it is a constant juggling and, and um, balancing act. I don't think there's there's no final moment where you say, yes, we've got this perfectly right. I mean, one of the things that you immediately notice when you do user testing and so forth on people or any kind of quantitative analysis is that what people say they do or say they want to do and what they actually do can be widely different. Have you experienced that in your marketing career? Oh, yeah, very early on. Right from the beginning in advertising, you're taught about the difference between claimed and actual behaviour and and to look out for that. So, you know, if that's what you mean in, in developing market research and surveys and everything, you have to be very careful to make sure that you're not building up a product based on something which is claimed behavior that isn't going to turn into actual behavior. I could probably think of a few examples where that's happened. For example, carbon offsetting. <laughs> I think everybody who um, we spoke to in the airline said, oh, yes, of course, I would offset my carbon. And then maybe 2% do. I'm not, 2%, sure, what the latest, yeah. I'm not sure what the latest stats are on, the, on that. So tell me about what you learned from charity. The uh, charities uh, are experts at extracting donations not extracting that's probably an unfair word but eliciting donations what did you learn from studying their techniques well yes so from charities i learned about the psychology of giving about their i mean you say i sound really hard-headed but (laughs) 
about the dopamine fix that you get from when you when you do give to a good cause and how you can generate that positive feeling from people from giving to a good cause by talking about the impact that they're having. And there's lots of different charities are very sophisticated at doing this about talking about the different way, different types of impact from just things like the actual you've you've enabled us to produce this this journalism to our journalism has then been able to have this impact on a certain sector of society or it's raised this voice that was previously unheard of or it's you know it's created this uh, a question which has raised certain estimates which has led to policy change etc so just learning that language of talking about impact and having both qualitative and quantitative measures to prove then back to your your sort of investors i guess as they are your community that their work their contribution has had a positive impact things like delivering the annual impact report which i've noticed the sydney morning herald is doing now as well but also about the the psychology of wanting to be part of a movement and so i studied not just charities but also political movements things like bernie sanders's campaign that drove amazing grassroots support from getting whole millions of people to donate just small amounts rather than focusing on you know a few big investors. Um, but again, just back, bringing it back to my sort of hard-headed data mind, it's about optimizing across the demand curve, right? So you've got to make sure that you've got messaging and, and sort of a product, as it were, that enables everybody from your real individual high-level donors right through to your small, you know, five dollar, one dollar a month people that you can satisfy them all and understand their needs yeah so you mentioned that 10 to 15 percent you could expect 10 to 15 percent of your readers to contribute is that right is that what you're your newsletter base so if you've got an engaged oh, newsletter, right. but yeah so i'd say between naught to five percent of your monthly google your sort of google analytics unique monthly browsers and then of your 10 to 15 percent of your actual newsletter base and that probably depends on how engaged your newsletter base is so if you only have sort of 10 to 20 percent open rates on average then it would be at the bottom end if you have like 40 percent open rates then you could be expecting 15 maybe even 20 percent conversion psychology of asking people for money you mentioned that you, people may be surprised who it works for who who will it not work for well i think since we know that loyalty and engagement is key to conversion it will not work for pure clickbait publishers who are just you know one hit wonders who are just publishing content for people to consume and then move on if there's no loyalty there's no traction there's no there's no way you're going to get people to to contribute voluntarily also perhaps if you're clearly a site that's set up as content marketing designed for lead generation you know for commercial interests behind it i can't see how anybody's going to be fooled into voluntarily supporting that but that leaves a huge range of other publishers who are doing things generally to serve a, an audience need. In your personal journey, Margie, you, you started in agencies and then um, moved to Australia and you worked in marketing uh, for Virgin, I think it was. Tell me about your personal journey. What's What's been driving your um, career and, and your interest? Well, I'm quite probably quite unremarkable, really. I, I sort of always loved both arts and sciences at school. I didn't sort of naturally fall into either camp. And that's why I liked the found that advertising appealing because it enables you to be creative and analytical at the same time. But I didn't naturally fit into the culture in ad agencies. I think they used to tease me um, and call me a hippie because I rode my bike to work and I and I bought secondhand clothes. And so I was always a little bit of a fish out of water. But then I did manage to, through advertising, move to Australia, which 
which was great from from London. And I got to work on the Sydney Morning Herald as my key client at the ad agency I was at here. Uh, and I, that's how I fell in love with the Australian media industry. So that was that was wonderful to have them as a client. But then I got poached by my other client, Virgin, and uh, to launch their international airline, Virgin Atlantic, in Australia. And um, my dad is an RAF pilot, so I've grown up on the on runways and with airplanes. It's as part of my part of my blood, really. So I just couldn't I couldn't resist that opportunity to work for an airline. And it, it's just a it's a fascinating business. I mean, it's the most complicated business on the planet. I think trying to you know get three hundred people up in a tin can between and travel across ten different countries, it's ridiculous and and completely addictive. And I loved the the sort of the cosmopolitan worldview of of the airline, the multiculturalism and the opportunity to travel was amazing. But that job ended at the time that um, Virgin Australia took over those routes. And at that moment, Guardian Australia was launching, and it just sounded like a fantastic opportunity because there was so much happening in digital media at the time. It was really exciting, and so I jumped at the opportunity to go back into media and work for a client that was really just 100% digital focused and and had a sort of a sense of a purpose to it as well. That really appealed to me. And I'd also at that point had married an environmental scientist and I was just horrified by the science of what I could see was, was happening to the planet and equally horrified by the distortion of the debate in Australian media. That, was, that sort of really scared me. And so I needed, personally, I needed The Guardian to succeed you know, as much as I needed it professionally. And I probably would have worked for them for nothing if I could have afforded afforded it. I think I actually maybe made the mistake of telling my boss that once, but I was very <laughs> <laughs> anyway, very much aligned with the mission of the Guardian. Yeah. So it's the right and, thing at the right it, time. How how important is that for you to work for, you know, what you regard to be ethically sound businesses? I I think as I've got older, it's become more and more important to me. Well since I've had kids, right? I mean I I've always wanted to show to my kids a good example that I can be financially independent as a working mother, but also I wanted to show that I could, through my work, make a positive contribution and show them that the world of grown-ups isn't just all about greed, that there is a way to succeed without necessarily having to um, just feed corporate greed. But um, doing more morally good businesses are already doing good, so I'm kind of thinking maybe they don't need my help and what I'd really love to do is help businesses become more ethical by proving that doing good is good for business. Now, I want to ask you about two more major things. You're now um, working with the press patron. Perhaps you could tell me how that came about. Oh, yeah. I met Alex um, a few years ago when I was at The Guardian, and he pitched to me. Um, he had already done a master's in the reader revenue models and had already proven that the voluntary contribution model could work even before the Guardian started trying it. So he was, you know, he was right up there with early innovative thinking in this area. So I was very impressed with his work and, you know, with his passion for doing this. So I also loved, but I also loved the simplicity of his product. I guess it's a digital checkout for people to, it's just a piece of tech that you can plug into your website. It, it, Inter interoperates with your CMS, with your CRM system, and it takes the money from from your whether they're contributors or subscribers or even you know patrons. They all pay through the Press Patron app, and then Press Patron provides the data back to the organisation. So um, you just plug in the components on your site. You get like a banner. You can put it in your article or on top of your 
page and, and a landing page. And then once they click on that, they just go through the press patron checkout. It just means that publishers don't have to build that themselves, which is a huge investment. Mm. Now, what are your thoughts about the limitations of philanthropic models for news journalism? Well, I think I've seen philanthropy work really well. So at The Guardian and one of my clients, Eon Media, when it's when they're backed by one philanthropist who's really generous and really passionate about the cause initially and is willing to invest in the long term, I think if you're looking at publishers trying to have you to appeal to a few different philanthropists, the main drawback is the time that that takes. You have to go on a journey of sort of, you have to curate their journey into your organisation, educate them about what you do. There's a lot of time invested also from the editorial side in in sort of in developing the pitches, building the relationships, you know, developing the impact report. It's, and the relationships are crucial. So, so that sucks up a huge amount of time. And you've only got one editor who is the sort of the vision um, inspiration can only turn up to so many meetings. Would you see reader contribution as a kind of micro philanthropy? Is that is it micro philanthropy that we're talking about here? Yeah, I guess so. Although I think readers are less less demanding about seeing the impact of their investments. What is similar though is that readers want to be contributing to something that is successful. So you have to be careful about crisis messaging saying, "Oh gosh, we're going to go under if we don't if we don't get support." actually readers really want to support something that is kind of going to succeed and I think that's the same with philanthropists you've sort of got to prove to them that you have got a you've got a plan and you've got a viable mm. model and there but you need their help mm. and it will grow and then develop so avoid the crisis messaging yeah and that's something I learned from charities actually charities know you can only you can only really switch the char- the crisis on once in a while I'd really like your thoughts on you know where news finds itself in in terms of uh, a business news media has has been struggling to finance finance itself do, do news organizations need to pay more attention to marketing i think there's a natural skepticism in news organizations around marketing and i think that's a very healthy thing i have a natural skepticism for marketing because i've been doing it i think there's a the skepticism is around a style of marketing which is you know, where you develop a very big impressive strategy at the beginning of the year and then you stick to your, you execute on your strategy and you stick to guns and then you have, you're, you're sort of subjectively motivated to try and prove that your strategy was right. And so you select the data to show that what you wanted to happen did happen. And in a way, sort of there's a, you know, this is completely antipathy to the way that journalists work. And so what I've been trying to do is move my marketing practice much more to, a more of a scientific process of almost a falsification. So it's more like, you know, Popper's theory of science, which is that you set up tests, you, you set up hypothesis and run tests almost to disprove um, that what you thought was going to happen does happen. And it's a constant process of test, learn, optimization. And I found that that mindset fits better with a, a sort of journalists who are naturally sceptical. And that's where you can find, you know, some mutual ground in that, in that process. I think you just described almost the whole of uh, business uh, across the board when you said you <laughs> you have a strategy and then you uh, and yeah. then you interpret the facts to 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 suit your strategy. That's kind of how everything operates. Thanks so much to my guest Margie Vary. You have to love the way she's bringing science to news. 
I hope you're enjoying Crawford Media. Please get in touch if there's someone you'd like to hear interviewed, and we have some absolutely ripper guests coming up. Thanks as always to Kevin McLeod, whose music track I have subtly altered to suit my purposes. Bye for now.